0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
2: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcasted but it's a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias,
0: and
3: Genevieve Kosky.
2: On last week's episode, we talked about Dangerous Liaisons, a story of power, sex, manipulation, and those who push it all too far for society to bear in late 18th century France. For our follow-up, we're bringing in Tar, the new film from Todd Field in which Kate Blanchett plays a giant of the classical music world who comes to a moral reckoning when her habit of using her protégés for sex comes to light on the eve of a creative triumph. And the phrase comes to light is key here, that Lydia Tar's involvement with and subsequent blackballing of a student named Krista pushed Krista to suicide becomes her professional and personal undoing, but it soon becomes clear that Lydia's behavior is an open secret. Her wife Sharon knows her ways and tolerates them, partly out of love and partly because their professional futures are entwined. In one scene, Sharon tells Lydia that the only non-transactional relationship in Lydia's life is with their daughter, and the film largely bears this out. Whatever affection Lydia might feel for lovers and colleagues is packaged into her need to maintain power and exert the power she has to increase it. But the film doesn't depict her as a monster, or at least not a monster all the time. Lydia emerges as a woman of tremendous talent. She may even have the brilliance to match her reputation. But what, in the end, does that matter? That's one of the many questions Fields' film leaves dangling. We'll get into it all after the break. If you're here then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things.
1: As a conductor, Tar began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra until she at last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013 Berlin elected Tar as its principal conductor and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro.
2: Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise.
3: Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes.
2: Yes, it does happen. So we're going to start with this movie. I guess the easy thing to refer to this movie is as a cancel culture film. I almost feel like that's just if you're making a movie about so, so now you kind of have to deal with it in those terms. I don't feel like this is a movie trying to explore or comment on cancel culture so much as like playing out within the environments of uh our, you know social media and current things by which people's behavior is is commented upon and and, and censured by the public. So I, am I am I off there?
0: I've seen a lot of reviews interpreting this as a movie taking cancel culture to task mm. or as a movie that's specifically about the reckoning of the Me Too movement. Like those, those two phrases come up a lot. And I've read more reviews and commentary on this movie than I'm used to reading about a given movie just because my experience with it, my reaction to it was so ambivalent and I, I wanted to take in other people's responses. I think it's interesting that the interviews that Todd Field has done about this movie, people keep asking him about cancel culture or Me Too, and he keeps dodging those questions and saying that it's a movie about power, that it the the genesis of this movie for him was in thinking about the different ways that people leverage power and how, how mutable and transitive it can be. And... It seems to me that there are a lot of aspects of this movie that I think are very deliberately ambiguous. And at times, I really kind of feel like he's just offering us a giant Rorschach blot and then kind of leaning back and putting his feet up and watching the fireworks that ensue and chuckling to himself and that that is Todd Field's version of power. Because I just don't (laughs) think that this movie is anything as simple as a castigation of cancel culture or a, a praise of cancel culture or an analysis of why we need cancel culture. I just don't think it's that specific. I think he's putting a lot of complicated things on the table and then leaving it to to the viewer to see like what they take in and how they process it.
1: Thank goodness for that. I mean, I was grateful for that. Yeah, that's that's ahead, not
0: in any way a, a, yeah. a castigation. I'm yeah. I'm just saying that when it comes to figuring out what this movie is about, that is my take.
2: I also think if it were a movie about the excesses of cancel culture, it wouldn't be a movie about this character, who mm-hmm. certainly is not an innocent in any in any way. And it, it's it's kind of tough for me to see anyone making that argument or that it's about someone who was treated unfairly in some ways. Although I guess the question of fairness is a little more complicated than fair or unfair, right?
0: Well, it certainly is here when we're not entirely sure exactly what the situation is what the truth behind the situation is but we do see some of the manipulations of the situation and there's there's always that question of like there can be a narrative neatness to stories where somebody is punished for something they didn't do while skating away from something that they did do but it's it's not clear whether that's the case here it's just offered up as a possibility
1: if this were a film that was actually about cancel culture then it would feel kind of like a modern day version of disclosure, right? Where Michael Crichton was sort of out there saying, "Oh, what if you know it's really you know sexual harassment is really about power, and let's just turn the tables and we're going to have it's going to be about a a, a woman who's the, the 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 one in power and and her male underling who's being uh, harassed." And this does not have that reactionary quality, though it is fascinated by. Uh, you know, so so I mean I I get what Field is trying to is saying. And I think the film bears it out that that it is much more interested in power and also a perspective. I mean the thing that's so fascinating to me about this movie is just being as locked in as we are to Lydia's perspective and her obsessions and also her myopia, you know, just her inability to understand, you know, the, the gravity of her behavior, to be able to understand how it affects other people and to be able to comprehend you know the wheels that start to spin and, and and that eventually lead to her downfall she gets surprised by that and i feel like that's that's a really solid interpretation of, of a person who is insulated by power i mean power power is something that, that that that's what power does it allows your abuses to be an open secret and to not have, face any um you know blowback from it so I, you know i felt like the film was very very subtle and sort of on point about it without being you know, overly topical or, you know, or making cancel culture like the subject of the movie. I think it's just, it's all very plausibly baked into it.
3: I avoided as much as I could about this movie before going into it, but I could not avoid the, this is a movie about cancel culture <laughs> uh, line, which which uh, definitely uh, penetrated before uh, I, I I went and saw for myself. And after seeing it, like, I definitely get, like, presenting that as a framing and, like, writing about this movie. Like, like the I think, like, the very first frame is, like, a phone live mm-hmm. uh, video, you know? Like, someone texting over, mm-hmm. over a video and, like, talking shit about her. And then, of course, that scene at Juilliard when she get, has that... I should say that incredible scene at Juilliard, that like incredible, like 10 minute one take scene of the confrontation between her and the, uh, the BIPOC pan gender student about, about Bach, like watching that, I was like sitting straight. I'm like, Oh, Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be it. You know, the, the, this is going to be where the cancellation happens. And it, does to a certain extent, like that video does come back, but to Scott's point about it be, uh, being a film about perspective, like it all of that is like very kind of backgrounded for a lot of the film until Lydia can no longer not even ignore it, but just be oblivious to it. And I think like the film is structured I, again, like to be from her perspective and to like kind of not invite us to think too hard about these interactions she is having and to just kind of gloss over them on the way to all these other like character moments and they're just kind of percolating in the background and creating this kind of growing sense of dread, but it's not really examining those incidents in any great detail. Until again the the end when it all comes to a head and then it's just like an avalanche and you're like oh this was there the whole time but I wasn't paying attention to it because I was paying attention to Lydia and that's what Lydia is doing you know like she's not thinking of these interactions in terms of the other people in them she's only thinking about her herself she is you know very myopic self centered person like one of my favorite character details. There's so many just, like, smart details in this movie, which I should say I I really loved. Mm-hmm. But one of, like, my favorite and I think most telling things is, you know, she's kind of haunted by noises throughout this film. You know, there's the screaming woman and, you know, the metronome and, you know, these sort of, like... You know, hauntings, but in a more sort of direct interpersonal way, there's a couple instances where she is, she puts a physical stop to someone else's like tick that is a result of their discomfort in that situation. There's, to go back to that scene at Juilliard, the, the student that she gets in the conversation slash confrontation with, he keeps like jiggling his leg through the whole time. And at some, at one point she actually like physically stops him from doing it. And later on, uh, it's sort of in her conversation slash firing of the assistant director. He's like clicking his pen nonstop, Mm. and she takes it from him and stops. And like in both instances, those are the other people in the situation visibly expressing their discomfort. And she just sees it as an annoyance. That just I think really kind of encapsulates the perspective of this film and how it kind of draws out that perspective in really specific and unexpected ways
0: but it's not just illustrating her annoyance it's illustrating her her use of power you know the mm-hmm. the taking hold of somebody else's body in order to say stop doing that Is just a very, it's very much a power move and it's very presumptuous. It's Mm -hmm. very entitled. And the fact that, you know, grabbing the student's leg to stop his restless leg syndrome, (laughs) which that is not helpful and does not work, comes back to bite her in a completely different way, but it wasn't appropriate in the first place. You know, it wasn't what somebody later pretends it was, but it also just was an overreach on her part. And it's just a very, very small and telling detail about how she sees the world that not just that she finds other people's discomfort irritating, but that she feels like she has the right to to grab somebody in order to stop them doing something that's annoying her.
1: The other side of that that's interesting to me is that is that because her behavior is so known, because it's such an open secret and because she is as myopic as she is she can be exploited as well and i i really love the character of olga this this russian cellist this young russian cellist who who becomes uh her you know instant you know protege slash you know love interest because olga n- knows the score <laughs> you mm-hmm. know olga kind of knows what's going on and it's like okay i can use this whole situation to my advantage and also at the same time, kind of like, you know, when I need to deny Lydia what what she wants, I can get what I want out of it. And then, you know, when when Lydia wants to have some sort of a night with me, I can say, I'm going to bed. And then, and then of course we see her you know, getting on an, on the elevator and and what looks looks like clothes to get, go to a nightclub or something like that. Uh, it, it's it's interesting to me how it kind of ends up cutting both ways. How there's a obliviousness to her that that works against her on a, a, on occasion too, and and um and of course ends up surprising her when everything happens as it does. I mean, you know, and of course you get to that, then you get to the you know the, to the very end of the movie when you speak of obliviousness, when she asked for that massage and it's like, okay, 10-4. <laughs> you, <laughs> why don't you go, go, go choose, choose one of these women, you know, with the numbers. And it's like, okay, this is what they think uh, of me. This is, they well, know, you know, that, yeah. I thought that was unbelievable. The
3: framing, the framing of that scene was so good too of the women in, in the fishbowl like a range as an orchestra would be. Oh, right. And, Damn. And, I'm, and I'm pretty sure the one who looks at her is like, Dead center where Olga uh, was seated in the orchestra. Damn, so I think we're that's, definitely that's
2: really a good catch. Yeah, damn, that's yeah, really good. The Whole uh, idea of generational change is also something that that is through the whole movie too. Because we meet her predecessors. Julian Glover plays plays her previous one, but also his is it Sebastian? Yeah, it's Sebastian, who is like she's trying to to roll out, but at the same time she's not really. Conscious that she is also there's a generation coming up behind her, and we see that with 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 the, her proteges. We see that especially with Olga, who, as you say, is kind of like knows the score. But um, I'm really taken with that Juilliard scene because I, I feel like I'm 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 running a lot of different emotions watching that because you know I I am I'm a little I get a little defensive about people just being dismissive of, of the canon, but also she is so close-minded about. The possibility that there's life beyond it, but at the same time, we see with her, she's definitely someone who, who's kind of entree into the world of classical music was studying, studying an indigenous musical tradition in, in South America, but she seems to have no interest in that at all anymore. And and there's a scene where she's she, you know, she is someone, you know, who's been a pioneer as a female conductor and she wants to kind of to change the terms of her own program that she sponsors so it's open to men as well so she's kind of like wants to in some ways quantum wants to toss the ladder she climbed up uh it's like she's been
3: patriarchy pilled yeah in a way yeah i think you're right and Well, and also in that kind of opening scene uh, with the, the New Yorker conversation, which, I mean, sort of, there is your exposition dump without actually being any useful exposition at all. But I just thought it was very interesting as a way to just sort of go through all the background of this character at once. But, you know, during that conversation, there is a question, you know, about you know, being a, a woman in a male dominated, you know, field slash world. And she kind of like gives an answer that is not wholly unfamiliar in, you know, kind of modern conversations of, you know, feminism and the Me Too, me Too movement of, of like, oh, I think we moved past that. You know, like it's, it, it is no longer affecting me personally. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it is no longer a problem. And then another sort of, you know, character detail is when she tells the little girl that she's Petra's father. <laughs> you, you know, there are a lot of sort of indications that she has sort of taken on a masculine patriarchal stance, maybe as a, like a matter of self-preservation or, or climbing the ladder. But that doesn't sort of change the the grossness of it. Now that it's now that she's there and saying these things,
2: this is a film where, where I just I find myself thinking about individual scenes, all of which, you know, I, I think play against one another, but but I think in, in isolation just just moments, that I just kind of like want to talk about <laughs> like the moment where she goes to like she follows Olga to the sort of like you know wherever she's staying. She seems she seems to be squatting or or like in an area where there are squatters and 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 to that sort of like broken down part of Berlin where she finds herself in in danger and falls. It is so like those moments of Lydia in isolation like that and running where she finds herself. In peril, like this is someone who has, you know, kind of insulated herself her from threat, but like suddenly, it's almost like her life is is increasingly put her putting her into the, the real world in ways where she finds she's completely unequipped to deal with with the uh, the situation.
0: There is a degree to which some of that reminded me of uh, Michael Haneke's cachet. There is sort of a feeling of there's a threat and there's even sort of an analogous idea there in terms of we're let in on the threat because somebody is illicitly filming her at times. But there is a sense that the threat's coming from inside the house and she doesn't. That metronome. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't understand it and she doesn't realize how to interpret it. She doesn't even entirely realize it's there. She's just sort of dealing with the, the signs and symbols. Which at times makes this feel a little like a horror movie, but only in places. I There was a lot about this film. I'm, I'm right there with you, Keith, in terms of I feel like a lot of these scenes could just open themselves up to discussion. I honestly am not sure we can do this movie justice in an hour, because I think we could probably spend like three hours just arguing about the classroom scene. For me, the classroom <laughs> scene was like that is that's where the movie lost me in terms of caring about her as a person i thought that her behavior there was so abominable so unjustified so smug and elitist and hateful and so unfair in terms of weaponizing her power and using it against somebody in just a completely unprofessional, bullying way. And the film never won me back on her. There were, I, don't think it's it, I don't think it wants to. I know, I think we're supposed no, I mean, to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, or do you yeah. think that we're supposed to see things like the video that's edited in such an amateurish and obvious way that then becomes a weapon against her? Like, you don't think there's any sympathy that we're supposed to have for her there?
2: I think no, it's because- a case no, of, of yeah. it being that, that, you know, the evidence being manipulated and being unfair, but I don't think in any way, it just feels like one more contributing factor to a a, a downfall that was a long time coming. Right.
3: Yeah, well, and, and that is already fully in process at that point because the, the information about Krista is already like out there in public at that point. And, you know, so the... The video is like, I think sort of the irony is that it's not her downfall, you know, and and it where I think, or at least I was expecting that it would be watching that scene, scene originally, but it's really just like another log on the flame at that point in the story. So I did not feel like I was supposed to like Lydia at any point. I think the very ending of this film, which I don't think we should spoil because it's such a... Beautiful grace note in case anyone is listening to this. Okay. Like I think just the the humor of that final like the uh humorous irony of it, like we're supposed to laugh at her. We are supposed to we're not supposed to feel bad for her in that moment, I don't think. So I, I, I guess I'm 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 uh surprised to hear that Tasha I thought you generally responded to sort of like difficult, hard to like characters. So I think I've...
2: also we're not Really, can Tasha reply first? just No, I, 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 uh, no I'm shutting <laughs> it down. Well, let me explain to you in the most terms possible why I'm shutting down. <laughs> ahead, Tasha, sorry,
0: <laughs> I often do like difficult or complicated characters, and I certainly am not on the bandwagon of uh, female characters in particular have to be likable. You know, that little weird bugaboo that we've been fighting over for 20 plus years now. But I found her so repellent that there were just a lot of times when the movie is asking us to be concerned about her experiences and her mindset, where I'm just thinking, but I don't care. Because the sequences of her directing the orchestra, I felt like those are meant to be like insights into her process and insights into her feelings about art. And 50% of them are in German, a language that I don't speak. And it seems to me like it's a deliberate distancing uh, tool because if you were fully understanding like the passion that she brings to this, maybe it would be too sympathetic. It's a weird detail, but there's so much time spent with her directing and so much of what she's saying – I have absolutely no idea like what she's talking about whether what's what's the nuance of these scenes are we are we supposed to see her as being like nitpicky about these things or like passion driven are we supposed to see her her takes on art as unfair to the the people that she's directing or inspirational I don't know because it's all just a language that I don't speak and it's just it's such a strange Decision, and I just I kept having that experience throughout the movie. Of okay, I understand that uh, the New Yorker interview is a sequence where we're getting a lot of information about her history and her mindset, but shooting it as this sort of like talking head back and forth in the driest language possible is just a a very strange decision to me. I found that seemed very tedious, and I kind of resent that. Getting by the end of the movie, I wanted to see it again. I wanted to revisit it to understand better what it's doing and what all the pieces are to some degree, the same with the the classroom situation. So I the push and pull of this film of care about all the nuances of this character, but hate this character, spend long, long periods of unbroken time listening to her espouse her beliefs, but also watch her at her at her adventures and have feelings about that. Like, I found it all very discordant. And in some cases, like outright tedious. And I think it would be, Field has said many people come to him and say, this would be a very different movie uh, a second time. Or I did watch the movie a second time and it was a very different movie. And I can see that. And I'm both tempted to immediately revisit it and just kind of horrified by the idea.
2: I think some Uh, of the discordance comes from the fact that she is an artist. And I think that we are supposed to recognize that you know, especially after everyone says it, including Adam Gopnik, that she's a great artist. And there is like this sort of this disconnect. I mean, I, I feel it with, you know, people whose art has been a lot to me, whose behavior I find impossible to reconcile. It's like, how can someone of such inner ugliness create something so beautiful? And and how also, like, I, I'm really taking with the scene where she's back at her childhood home, watching Leonard Bernstein's uh, Young People's Guide to the Orchestra, and being completely moved by because this is this is home base for her. This is where she fell in love with with what will become her passion for life. And like, doesn't erase any of that ugliness or make her in any way sympathetic. Because I don't think she's at any point really a sympathetic character. Or, or but you see who she is, and you, and you see you have to kind of wrestle with that contradiction. As well. This is someone who feels things very deeply, and perhaps feelings that we know from our own experiences with art, and yet is kind of a monster. Not even kind of <laughs> a monster, as I said as in the intro, much, much of the time.
3: I want to real quick go back to something that Tasha mentioned about the lack of translation of the the German during her the conducting scenes, and and I, I can confirm that that was a conscious decision because I, unknown to me, bought tickets to the subtitled showing of Tar for the hard of hearing, and I actually I actually am really glad I did. I picked up a lot that I think I might have missed having having the subtitles on there. So there were subtitles for everything, but then during these when she's speaking. German to the orchestra, it is not subtitled. We are Mm. not meant to understand what she is saying if if you don't speak German. And I think if I had to speculate on a reason for that choice, I think it would maybe be to kind of keep us at a distance of understanding her genius or seeing it at work. Like we're told about it a lot. But I think if we actually like experience it like very close up, it might invite some sort of sympathy that the film doesn't really want us to have from for her it it does want to sort of keep her as this cold figure and i i I think it works i am like vaguely curious of what those lines are but i honestly don't think it matters or would maybe register to me as someone who does not play classical music at a professional
1: level what i appreciate about this film is this the fullness of this character? I mean, you know, and I think I, I, I never really thought for a moment that that we were supposed to find her sympathetic. It was just, it was really that kind of binary sympathetic, non-sympathetic didn't really, it was really just about, is this a compelling person to follow? And the answer is, is an emphatic yes for me. I mean, because yeah, we are, it, it is, I think, a, a, almost kind of a unique privilege to be, So locked into the perspective of somebody whose behavior is monstrous, but that we also know quite, get to know quite intimately. And so we kind of, we know the roots of her, of her desire, the roots of her power, but also her, you know, we're also become acquainted with her, her brilliance as well. and, And how all of that stuff is sort of packaged together in this extremely complex and like I said, sort of full way and it just to me it just enriches the, the the film It makes it makes it kind of a a, a, a um you know a complex experience and in a gratifying experience to, to find to follow somebody who's who is not anyone that one, one can sympathize with but, but is someone who who you can find multifaceted and 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 complex and you know i mean there's just so much going on in this character and so much going on in this performance i mean I, you know i'm a fan of kate blanchett she's been very good in m- many films extremely good in many films but this is like her signature work right i mean this is like an unreal performance and and just generally the cast like Todd Field was just like got to just cherry pick from like the best international actors he could he gets he gets uh, Naomi Merlant from uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire he gets Alan Cordner from uh, Topsy Turvy and other other uh, uh, films like that he he gets Nina Haas my Haas's uh, boss the the, the great uh, actress and all those Christian Petzold films I mean this is this is just the performances in this are just exquisitely you know as well as the filmmaking i i I am a big fan i mean this is my favorite film of the year so far and uh i I don't know i just think it's so unusual and and it's so there's so many bold choices in the film but it's also subtle in places too and and uh allows itself to uh give you a a lot of complicated feelings about lydia even if you you know understand that you know she's a monster
0: in the process of praising the cast, I don't think you should blitz by uh, Sophie Cower, who plays Olga. Uh, this is her first feature film role. And she, I thought she was just like a mesmerizing presence yeah. in terms of the kind of power games and manipulations that she's playing as well. But also that just like that breakout moment where she doesn't realize that the group of people who just gave her a job are coming down the hallway as she allows herself a, a moment of ebullience immediately after learning that she got the gig. There's a lot going on in that character as well. And, I mean, obviously, Kate Blanchett rules the day. This is a huge performance for her that she brings a great deal to. But I, I definitely don't want to gloss over Sophie Cowers like... Premiere, like coming out as an actress. And mm-hmm. I hope a lot more to come from her.
2: And to clarify, she is a cellist. I mean, that's, that is her primary occupation or has been until, until now. Uh, so that's, it's uh, and and thus she was cast as, as a cellist. Um, she can, she can do her own stunts, I guess. is, is a way to put it. Uh, well, we have, we go on talking about Tar. Maybe we should. Let's just cancel. Let's just scrap the rest of the episodes. Keep talking about Tar. Well, we no will talk connections tar. between these
0: movies at all. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> we we will talk about Tar and Dangerous Liaisons in relation to one another after the break.
0: Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means the time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right, time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and yes. the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together.
2: Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And, you know, it, this was, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. It was my turn to host. I had not seen this. <laughs> so I went with Scott's suggestion to do. Dangerously liaisons and i you know after seeing tar like well yeah look at that, that of course it's kind of a stretch but the more we get into it the more i'm seeing connections here so i'm not sure Thank where, where, where to start here um, I was, <laughs> I was so nervous. i was so
1: nervous i think i think the entire group no one had seen it and i think everybody yeah. was like was like you know that Dangerous Liaison sounds like a kind of a juicy one to kind of dig into. And so people, people, will be trusted. fun to revisit that. Sure, why not? Yeah, everyone sort of trusted me, but I was like asking each one, I asked all of you just like, have you seen Tara? Am I crazy? Am I crazy for thinking <laughs> the, these, these? Well, uh... so
3: I think in that case, you should have the honor of, of picking the first connection <laughs> that, that, uh, we, we discuss.
1: Okay. So let's then tie together the, uh, you know, what I was thinking, which is this first one you have here, uh, feminine power and male dominated society. It's just the arc of the, stories particularly Isabel, who is uh, glenn close's character and and in dangerous liaisons and in, in, in lydia here are so similar the way that their understanding of their own power their feeling of insulation for consequences to their behavior the diabolical exertions of that power when they have have the opportunity and then their downfalls which are so similar and 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 in both cases I think they they they're uh, should be conscious of the fact that they live in these patriarchal uh, systems and um, it's something that it, it's something that they and I think it was Keith who was saying it earlier about about kind of tossing the ladder down as as <laughs> Lydia does after climbing it is that it's it's kind of an acknowledgment of how to play that game and how to, how to kind of mimic that structure and reinforce that structure even if even if in the case of Lydia she's supposed to be kind of a trailblazer uh but we can see that she's not a trailblazer at all in fact there's a, there's this incredible piece of the movie where she really appreciates her assistant's work so much that she does everything she can to sabotage her, her advancement beyond that job like she can never get a job anywhere else uh because uh this is where this is the role that she wants her in and, and uh that is just you know that is something she feels like she's entitled to. Wait, wait, um, wait,
0: Scott. I think there's a possibility that you're misunderstanding that.
1: I am. When what she I, what I miss
0: when she deletes all those emails.
1: No, I thought I thought that she was sending out. I thought I thought there was there was a, a thing where the where the uh, assistant was was wanting to get other positions and she was stepping on the. Yeah,
0: you're conflating Christa's, some things. Yeah, yeah, those are those are,
1: are emails.
2: Yeah,
0: oh, those are no. all of the uh-huh. e- the emails that she's trying to like hide the evidence oh, of where rewind. she. I like
1: I like I like my I like my I think <laughs>
0: I
3: think what I, I
1: think the thing I misinterpreted would would have actually been a pretty damn good little twist. Uh, Agreed, um,
3: that would have been brutal. I mean. In I guess Scott's defense, that specific scene with the emails, I think was you know obviously that's that's very clearly about Krista, but I
1: do not think that clearly I thought it was about. <laughs> well, her, I mean, her man, name, it this
2: in best. all of those clearly, emails. This yeah. brutal, I think she does want yeah, to see Francesca in her place, working for her. But, but ex- ex- not, exactly, yeah. okay.
0: but yeah, yeah, I do like, think uh, her. I mean, she she does prevent uh, Francesca. She she does not give Francesca a promotion that Francesca thinks right. she deserves. There you go. I thought that that was less about wanting to keep her in her position and more about she's at that moment in a kind of in a place where people are maybe onto to her a little bit mm-hmm. and she's yeah, under suspicion. Yeah, yeah. So so not promoting Francesca in that moment is her way of, yeah, covering her tracks, denying that the process that people have noted, the progression that people have noted of her privileging and promoting her own sexual partners, she takes it back. And that proves to be a, a huge undoing for her because somebody who's trained at the feet of the manipulation master knows how to uh how to handle that and how to take her apart as a result. So I mean I think I think what you're saying is mostly true, Scott. I, I just the emails are not about Francesca.
3: Well, they're about Francesca and that I think we're meant to believe that Francesca is the one that leaks the emails that that lead to the deposition and oh she is unquestionably of, uh, the one that uh,
0: yeah. edits the the video and sends it.
3: Oh yeah, I guess I guess she she was in the in the room during it that does make sense And
2: it's it's unclear if Olga is talking you know there's I've certainly seen people suggest that Olga is sending that video and and text, to Francesca the the the, the mm-hmm. video that opens the, the movie I don't I don't think we have a way to say it definitively but it certainly oh, seems no. like it yeah. could, could no, be
0: I I don't think that's true at all. I think no? I think that Francesca's response to Krista's suicide is very emotional and very personal. Mm. I think that I again I would need to go back and look at the exact text of that text exchange but she says something to the effect of you're still in love with her aren't you? And the person she's texting says maybe i i think that that's her texting back and forth with krista who she is still very much in contact with as we see from her email
2: oh uh, so you think it's francesca doing the video not olga god i it. think okay. it's francesca
0: on the plane and she's mm. there as her assistant but she's still talking with krista this is before krista's death Got it. and this is turns out to be an indication of the relationship that they still have I'd which is that. why she comes apart and then turns even more so on Lydia after Krista's death,
2: yeah, I guess it's, it that, wasn't clear to me that, that where that was chronologically, but but I think that's a pretty well, good explanation because
3: because there is another text exchange much later in the film after things have started to to fall apart at that book reading, signing, whatever. Um and I think that one is Olga. Um, so I think it's sort of a creating a rhyme between these two mm. assistants of hers that are both uh, kind of talking shit about her but um to bring it back to this actual connection
2: with but i think it's
3: it's really interesting that both of these women lydia and isabel both you know in the process of exerting their power that they have sort of developed in response to a, a patriarchal society they create both protégés and victims, and sometimes they are one and the same, or often they are, are, they are one and the same, of other women specifically. And they have both clearly internalized these patriarchal systems in order to be able to move within them. And I think we're kind of meant to read both of them as having been poisoned by them to an extent and passing that poison on to the other women in their lives.
0: I think that is a really great point, the fact that their their victims are their protégés and vice versa. And I think to carry it a little further, I think they both have a desire. They both have manifestos about their place in society as women and how they've upended them and, and where they've gotten to. They both have these speeches that are declarations of their their power and success and how they've navigated things in one And I think in the moments where they're passing things along to their protégés, they kind of can't help their smugness. They kind of can't help their feeling that they have great wisdom to provide. But in both cases, their selfishness also dominates. And the importance of never letting somebody else get a hand on power kind of dominates and overrides what could be personal connections, you know, what what could be like lasting, meaningful personal connections if they weren't so intent on harming those people as well for, you know, small gains and for the the ongoing status quo where they feel above anybody they're talking to.
3: And I think the ways in which they do that leads us to, to another connection here, which is, uh, sexual gamesmanship. And it's much, much, much more at the forefront in dangerous liaisons. Like, one thing that I find interesting about TAR is that, like, you know, there are these sexual relationships that are you know, informing this story in in a really big way, but there is no sex <laughs> in in this movie. I don't think there's even any kissing other than maybe like a chaste peck with her wife. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, there, we never actually see the act kind of similar to how we don't see a whole lot of it in uh, dangerous liaisons. And maybe that's because, as I said at, at the end of the last episode, like the sex itself is no longer really the the appeal for these people. It's you know, it's it's the chase, it's the winning it, you know, it's the power they get from it. It's not the sex itself. It's um, it's
1: the secretarial work that (laughs) (laughs) in dangerous liaisons.
3: Right, right.
0: (laughs) The desk. Yes. In keeping with that, it's it's sort of odd to me in particular that Lydia is still engaging in these sexual games when we, we see her being approached by a woman after her New Yorker uh, conversation who tries to pick her up, you know, who who wants to get her number, who wants to connect with her. She certainly could have her pick of essentially fangirls, you know, people who admire her and and respect her and look up to her and think of her as a a big, famous celebrity. So the need to groom women around her in her field and privilege them and empower them only up to the point that she wants and and control them just takes that a whole lot further. Whereas the Marquis, she... She I guess she does bring in uh, bring in lovers who, again, she can kind of oversee and and operate on her own terms. But there just seems to be much less of a sense of maybe enjoying sex or being interested in sex, which I think that Lydia leaves her lovers at a distance in part because of the power dynamics, but it it does seem like she's hungry for that connection in a way that I'm not sure the Marquise is. Although the the scene where Malkovich comes and finds her and the Chevalier lying together, it it does just sort of seem like Maybe she is enjoying like a peaceful moment with nobody demanding anything of her. Uh, I don't know how much that's sexual or reflective of their sex life, and
1: <laughs> how much she's just enjoying being to chill be, to be the you know. It's a pretty boring mm-hmm. time to be the, the idol rich. I mean, that's kind of just something to do. So maybe maybe there are a lot of aspects of the of you know sexual gamesmanship, including the sex that they that they like. But but yeah, you're right right, right in both films. De-emphasize it to a to a degree, though though there is a certain amount of lust or sexual pursuit that, that Lydia is engaged in that she's almost is compulsive. Like she, I think she even as myopic as she is, she has to know that she's endangering herself to some degree. Right.
3: Especially at like at the end when she's inviting Olga out, it's like, girl, what are you doing? (laughs) This is already out there that you do this. Like, Like Olga's clearly onto you. I'm curious if you guys think that Olga, like was never impressed with what Lydia was putting out there or if she had a change of heart when the Krista story started percolating.
1: She struck me as never impressed to me. Yeah.
2: She's, she's tough to cool. read. She's, she's very a,
1: Russian. She's, and she's, she's, she's very, exactly, very Russian. She's very Russian. She's very uh very cool and kind of like I just don't feel like she's at all swayed by or like uh, you know she's not really under lydia's spell in a way that that, that another yeah, like, might be
3: like like she came to cello via a youtube video i love that that like early <laughs> conversation between them it just like draws such a stark distinction between sort of how they view and navigate this world and, and a general a huge generational divide too you know i mean lydia's you know mentor is and Bernstein and Olga's is YouTube. You
0: know? <laughs> but, you know? but they're that, you know, both watching that, videos. But yeah, they're both coming right. to it through through
3: That's watching true. videos. That's a good point.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
3: like I you, think get, of that. you know,
2: Lydia is wasn't always Lydia. She was Linda, right? And, and like she was just yeah. a, a kid, and and. Uh, in new jersey i I assume or um or you know somewhere somewhere that was not New York City, you know I think it was Staten island, yeah well wa- yeah there you go watching watching Leonard bernstein and, and being it's it's her generation's equivalent of of describing classic mu- classical music via YouTube, even if she doesn't see that connection.
0: I am sort of curious what you all make of somebody at work who wanted really wanted to discuss tar with me specifically brought up that element of her being revealed as coming from a working-class background because uh, it can very much come across as kind of condescending as, you know, well, look what she rose up from, look what she rescued herself from, or look what she's fallen back to. There's a Uh, Kind of a condescension, I think, in the way that that house and that neighborhood are portrayed. We don't really get much of a sense of who the Marquis was before she is what she is, like what her what her husband was like, what her relationship and her life were like, apart from that comment that she makes about. Being thoroughly done with being given orders, which maybe suggests that her her home life was not lovely before her husband died, which makes me for the first time wonder exactly how her husband died. Yeah. but you know, Lydia, we just get this one small glimpse of what her life was like and how her her existing living family sees her and it's none of it's particularly pleasant. Did you did, did you see that as condescending? How did you interpret that? I think it's
3: condescending to assume that a working class background <laughs> is something that a character would be ashamed of. That is not how I read that scene at all. Like I think it was Just the way that it was framed, it was just meant to show us how... Far, Lydia has strayed in her success from where she began, like even the colors of that scene are entirely different than the palette of the rest of the film. you know, like we only see Lydia in that point in these very kind of sparse, cool, modern Teutonic environments, you know, even that that symphony hall is like incredibly just you know modern and stark, and then to go back to this you know cluttered very lived in home, which like I didn't really, you know, register any sort of like, I guess, socioeconomic tells there. More just sort of a a hominess, a humanness that is not part of, of her life currently and that she is sort of like retreating back to out of necessity and maybe realizing how much she transformed herself and maybe lost herself in the process, which I think is what the watching the the tapes is about.
0: I definitely interpreted her brother in terms of his his accent, his dress, his kind of obvious disdain for her pretenses uh, in changing her name, which like Lydia is not exactly the most uh, pretentious possible name. Like he just the way he kind of drips with disdain uh, addressing her. I I took that all as uh, meant to be very accusatory about the background of the family she came from.
2: She's also changed her last name. To stylize it with the accent mark over the A and dropping an R, I I believe at one point you see a diploma or something with 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 her with the full T A R R on there.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot of details in this movie.
2: Yeah, yes, for sure. Here's something: a connection I kind of alluded to above is that both of our protagonists' downfalls come not because they break the rules, but because they break the rules. Too much, too far. They push things. They, 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 they take acceptable behavior like a step beyond what society will allow. Like it is kind of satisfying in some ways to see Isabella booed at the at the opera, but there is also a certain amount of hypocrisy. Like you know, they knew she was no good. They didn't know just how, they, but she became. Unacceptably no good. Uh,
3: she became publicly no good. Like right.
2: the, you know, her the letters
3: were published. Also, so, is that, you know. but
0: is that true? I mean, they knew that the uh, Valmont was no good. He had a a reputation, but all my indications of her reputation are that you know she's considered wise and generous and giving. That's why mm. people come to her for for advice. I don't think she's got the reputation as a. A monster, because I think she's been a lot more careful, which she specifically kind of says to Velmont is like women have to be a lot more careful than you yes. do.
2: Perhaps I, I I sort of understood it to be a situation where where everyone is hypocritical in this society, mm-hmm. and like she, but she got caught you know and with, with with lydia you know there's obviously a what comes out about her particularly the, the suicide you know it is it is way way beyond the pale but at the same time and perhaps it wasn't publicly known like adam gopnik and, and the crowd at the audience may not have known that lydia had a reputation but certainly in the circles her professional mm-hmm. circles had had a reputation as well it just became as you say publicly unacceptable
0: I wonder if part of the unacceptability, though, there is that society loves a martyr. And in both of these films the emotions shift, not necessarily because the character's doing anything different, but because suddenly she's on the wrong side of someone young and beautiful who died. I guess Valmont is not as young and beautiful as some other people in that movie, but he still does have his adherence. And now that he's dead, he's a a very different kind. Now that he's tragically and beautifully dead in somebody's arms, forgiving him for the crime of having uh, murdered him, suddenly that is just much more of a a beautiful focus, much as, as Krista is a much more important and beloved figure after she's dead. I I think in both cases, public opinion shifts specifically because somebody was uh, martyred to get there.
1: And just, and it, things just surfaced, you know, it, it, I, that was the thing with, that, that I really appreciated about Tar, you know, when you think about You know, if you you want to think about it in the context of, of Me Too, which is that I think there were a lot of the people who were brought down were people who whose misbehavior was indeed an open secret where it was like mm-hmm. oh boy, you know, it's like, you know, you get, you get you know, there's maybe some indication that the Charlie Rose-like character in in uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, you know, that might be a Charlie Rose reference. People kind of know some, that he's a little bit skeevy or certainly the rumors about Weinstein were, I mean, were pretty loud way, way before that anything happened in, in that case and it happens, you know, again and again and
2: again. That's but, just kind of how it, how it goes. But with Weinstein, like, did you expect everything we knew like maybe we knew he was sleazy but 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 not well uh, well, i mean well that's a whole other that's a whole other
1: significant though i mean there is a kind of a thing you know james Toback is another one just uh, immense just pattern of misbehavior among dozens and dozens of women in that case and and it's just something where it just percolates and it's accepted to the point it's accepted until there's an actual public uh, reckoning and i think there's kind of that that is uh ends up being lydia's downfall but it wouldn't have you know if, if that suicide doesn't happen she's fine she's allowed to kind of continue doing what she's doing
3: as far as like the open secretness of this i like this is another element where like the power differential is is really important like going back to isabella and you know how known it was that she was having these these affairs. Like, there are servants everywhere. Her household staff certainly knows what's, what's going on, but they have no power, nor does it at all benefit them to make it public. The same way that in the Me Too era, like, assistants, even, you know, actors that are being employed by these figures, like, they may know But they are.
0: There's a movie about that. I can't remember what it's called (laughs) about somebody who's an assistant to (laughs) uh, a Weinstein-like figure.
1: I mean, to my mind, if if we're going to talk about sort of Me Too type of movies, I mean, Tar and the assistant—that's a pretty solid Mm -hmm. duo. I mean, like, I feel like I feel you know, I always I always kind of criticize uh, the movies of contemporary movies for really not squaring up to contemporary problems and that's not the case here those are those are a couple of really those are a couple of humdingers uh that kind of really uh you know face the problem both, one that really tasha, both ones
3: that tasha was ambivalent about too <laughs> for,
1: uh,
3: for what it's yeah, right yeah, but, but i'm ambivalent about a lot of movies That's true. That's true. Uh, Before we leave the uh, connection of sort of their respective downfalls, I do kind of want to talk about them each on maybe more of like a structural level. We we discussed a little in the first part just how like abrupt the end of of Dangerous Liaisons is as far as, you know, her... Comeuppance. It's it's the one scene of booing, and then that incredible final scene, very very powerful scene. But all told, maybe ninety seconds, (laughs) you you know, out out of a two hour movie. Whereas in Tar, we get like a whole act, pretty much of a post cancellation, Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, of her. And so when she goes to a unnamed Southeast Asian country, seems seems like Thailand. Like it does. Without getting into the specifics of the ending, because again, like I really want people to experience it for themselves, we are kind of led to believe that we might be headed down a path of slight redemption, of, of humili of, you know, her her being humbled and maybe working her way back up. And then that is sort of like ripped away in deliciously wicked fashion. So it's very different like this is more of a contrast within this connection but i think like both approaches that like very short but powerful single scene and this more extended sequence that has its own sort of arc and does its own sort of manipulation within it like they are both very effective just in very different ways
0: i will say as far as that final scene in tar goes People are definitely interpreting it in extremely different ways. I think it's yet another Rorschach blot. I've got somebody writing about it for me next week who thinks it's a much, much more positive ending uh, than people are interpreting it as, which I I think is very interesting. But leaving that aside, what it has in common with Dangerous Liaisons is that element I was speaking about in terms of the final shot of Glenn Close, I don't know that I have a strong opinion about exactly where we're supposed to, how we're supposed to feel about Lydia in the moment of that finale or how we're supposed to feel about the situation she's in. But I do feel that it has some of the same elements of Dangerous Liaison's ending in that it's, again, a sort of sense of this may be how it's going to be from now on. This we you have ahead of you many many years and they're all going to be seen through this lens or happening in this kind of way like this is where your life is and what you do with it we don't know we're we're left in a kind of a pregnant moment in both cases but it's a pregnant moment that kind of predicts the future that kind of gives us an image of it
1: i think one th- one point i wanted to make uh, about the comeuppance part of both of both of these movies, is I think that we is that is that both uh, Isabel and Lydia do have moments of self awareness that are very painful for them to confront. Uh, you know, with with Isabel, of course, all of this all of this uh, <laughs> tragedy that's unfolded before her, all of these all, you know her sort of downfall. I mean, I think she is, you know, and then of course her, her getting booed at the opera. I mean, this is kind of this is a reckoning. This is something where she really does have to face, you know, this, you know, her entire world falling apart as a result of her actions. And then I think, and then there you get that moment in Tar where Lydia goes to that massage parlor and then and then it, it confronts what it is that people actually think of her <laughs> you know it would think what what she what what it is they think she desires and are and, and they're going to accommodate those d- desires and she ends up kind of like throwing up as she leaves the 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 building uh because it's so it, she, she's so repulsed by by what it is that people imagine her to be and um you know i it, so I, I thought that was kind of an interesting Again, sort of rhyme between these two movies that the, the fact that they that they do in this moment of comeuppance, which is which they both in a way deserve, still are capable of finally having a moment of personal reckoning where they where they realize, you know, what society thinks of them and, and, and what their behavior has resulted in.
2: And perhaps with the brothel scene, you know, kind of seeing herself, as you say, as others see her, but like this is kind of reducing what she has been doing down to its its basest form, and and that, you know, that she's repulsed to that realization as well.
0: I guess I feel like maybe that's the scene where I'm not seeing what you guys are seeing, hmm. and it left me, it left me a little confused about why she reacts so strongly in that moment it sounds like all three of you interpret it the same way what are you seeing in that moment that tells you that this is a reflection on on her past like she she literally
1: wants a massage she doesn't want she does not want she does not want sexual company like it's not you know it, it is it is she is telling them what 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 she actually wants quite literally and they are saying they are thinking that she is saying wink wink you know, this is what I want. I've come for a massage. And they're like, okay, we know who, who this person is and we're going to kind of, you know, we're going to accommodate. It's also fun in kind of lower she
2: gets station directed. where she's used to staying in hotels where asking for a massage gets her a massage. And now she's staying in a hotel where asking for a massage gets her this.
0: That just seems like such a cultural thing to me, though. Like, especially if she's in, in Thailand and you know there's an an expectation in that kind of neighborhood of exactly what she's looking for the fact that a hotelier that doesn't know anything about her would take the request for a massage as meaning you want a massage parlor just doesn't seem to me like a huge reflection on on who she is it's not like Anybody who knows her or anybody from her world directed her there. Uh, Maybe. I I, I don't know.
3: I I mean, I don't think her being directed there is where the self-awareness comes in. I think it is that actual moment where she is looking at these sex workers presented in the exact same layout that she had been, you know, looking at Olga, someone who she was not consciously thinking of in terms of sexual manipulation, but having it presented to her in that context, I think it made her realize that what she was doing was sexual manipulation. And I think it made the the subtext text for her in a way that just sent her reeling.
0: So it's just her seeing for the first time the the transactional nature of what she's been doing to
2: people right. as
0: something low and and common and dirty.
2: Yes, Interesting.
0: that's how I took
2: it. Makes huh. sense. Cool. We, of course, love getting low and down and dirty in here, but I mean, we should probably wind things up. Do you have any final thoughts on, on connections between TAR and Dangerous Liaisons?
0: This is a, a huge cheat, I think, but we didn't get to it in the TAR segment. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Both of these movies have their credits at the beginning. And right. one of them mm. is yeah. has its credits at the beginning because it's a movie from the 1980s, and that's how it was done back then and the other one has its movie it's its credits at the beginning and it's a huge anomaly and they're also backward in terms of how they they roll i read a review on letterboxd that has a theory about this that i found fascinating and insightful but In the moment in the theater, the experience, I just I found it so baffling, like intriguing, because you just, you know, from the start that you're seeing something that's very unusual for these times. But I'm curious how you all interpreted it, how you how you took that kind of moment of provocation,
1: really. So Todd Field arting it up. (laughs) 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 It was funny. It was funny because like because that was uh, uh, I, I won't name this person, but someone at my, at the critic screening got super upset and was like trying to chase down. A publicist to try to to fix the the movie, you know. And I was like, "Come on, this is clearly intended. Why, why is this happening? Just let me let me watch this this thing that Todd Field is most definitely doing for for real." Oh, have they ever seen hilarious. *Memento*? I mean, <laughs> or, or, Ga- the, or the films of Gaspar Noé*? You no, know, yeah. Noé* does that too.
3: Yeah, I mean, I took it like kind of as you said, Tasha, like a provocation, or or not even more just like a not a dare. But it's like you are going to sit here and you are going to watch all the credits because at, at, they're at the end. You're not going to do it. And this is a film that we all worked very hard on. <laughs> and you are going to respect the names of all the people that worked hard on it, uh, whether you like it or not. And I, I, I do appreciate that.
0: I like that theory. That is definitely also something that I've not seen Todd Field comment on at all. And I'd be very curious for somebody to uh, ask him about that. The Letterboxd analysis came from Brian Formo, who's one of the the crew on Letterboxd and also on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, a a bunch of other projects, and uh, also a film critic that I just was not familiar with. But I'm just going to read what he says. The opening credits start backwards with the members of the crew that generally are at the very end of the end credits, like catering and production units and assistant editors. This is a movie about how an ego can grow too big and turn to manipulation when one's role gets too much credit in a collaborative field. An orchestra is like a film set, and most collaborators get shoved to the back of a program or the end of the film credits. While this adds to the movie's runtime up front, it's a fitting gesture for the movie you're about to watch. I think that's really insightful uh, again, I would love to hear Todd Fields talk about this. I don't always want uh, directors to explain themselves, but with decisions this unusual, I yeah, I just I kind of I kind of wonder. I he obviously did it for a reason, and we could guess all day at those reasons or come up with elaborate and thoughtful interpretations of those reasons. But I, 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 I just like want to hear him. Though. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, good for no, you, Brian. I like Formo. It too. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, we are going to have to roll credits ourselves pretty soon uh, we should but, have done that at the top of the show yeah we should have yeah. like yeah we, it's not too late uh let's hey let's, let's, we could let's, have, let's we
3: could have talked for two and a half hours <laughs> instead of if we'd done that
2: <laughs> uh well anyway dangerous liaisons is currently uh rentable through the usual services and is available on blu-ray and dvd uh blu-ray has a audio commentary with hampton and frears which i have not listened to but it sounds interesting uh tar is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it your next picture show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, I believe you have something to recommend related to these films, or at least one of these films.
1: I do. If you well, if you if you go back in the if you. <laughs> If you put yourself in the way back machine you may uh, uh Todd field has directed some other films uh before not many uh um, only, he's he's, only he skipped three. a
2: whole decade there's no there's no <laughs> film from the from the from the tens with him at no, all
1: no not at all and you know so he so uh, I he his first film is in the bedroom and uh it's a film I admire a lot and it was the and I happened to see the world premiere of that film that was the only Sundance film uh, I ever uh, attended and uh, and I remember seeing it in in the finest venue they have which is the high school auditorium <laughs> and, uh, and, and 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 sitting sitting in the front row and being completely blown away by it to the point where I had it was like one of those cases where I didn't even tr- where I later kind of started to distrust my own reaction because I'd seen so many cases of, of people reacting strongly to a film at Sundance and being kind of caught up in that spirit, and then and then down from the mountain, it, it sort of landed a different way, and I and I feel like in the bedroom maybe was that case a little bit for me, but seeing Tar again, it's like maybe I was right about how amazing in the bedroom was. Um, <laughs> so so I kind of want to uh, you know recommend everyone and and then also myself, uh, revisit this this film because you know I have to say you know when I go to a festival like Sundance or, or you know or you look at something like Tribeca, there's a lot of damn f- films by actors turned director and it's not th- those are, they're not generally exciting events but in the bedroom is one that strikes you right away as as the work of somebody who has great ambition as a, as a director and and it has a very stately sort of three act structure it's very strongly connected to you know sort of it's new england setting and it, and it and it moves through these little distinct acts. I mean, it starts with you know it stars Tom Wilkinson and, and Sissy Spacek. They're the parents of, of a character's play by Nick Stahl and you know he's their only son and he's a, he's an adult and and he's you know sort of on his way. To a happy life with someone they don't necessarily approve of, played by Marissa Tomei, but nevertheless, they're highly invested in this young man. Uh, something happens to this their son, and uh, something you know, which is I guess predictable. Something tragic happens to this kid, and it fractures the the marriage in a profound way and it leads also to a reckoning that is sort of taken on by by the father as a way to, of, of you know addressing what had happened to his son and it's just it's played out much like uh, tar and a lot of long scenes it's not as long a film as tar but 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 it has the that kind of patience and focus on performance and, and you know in, in complexity of behavior and in the, the ability of to, t- to take characters that we would you know, that we would feel a lot of sympathy for and, and show them edging a little bit into the dark side. So uh, In the Bedroom is the movie. You know, I, if you haven't seen it before, you know, it's it's in, in you admire Tar, then uh, uh, I, I definitely would go back and, and, and check it out because um, uh, it, it's a very, very strong debut
2: i will suck at that that's a great movie and and i need to see a little children again his second yeah, i kind of do too because I, like, I, I didn't love it, was it. okay I, I, yeah. I liked it but i, I wasn't blown away by yeah. it yeah to the know.
1: point where i was kind of like where tar kind of resurprised me just kind of like oh wait i saw little children i was like ah oh, this guy maybe he's just kind of a middle brow director maybe there's not much much there and then and then tar happens and Is like whoa this guy's got this is this is this is this is major so it's i don't know stuff he got stuff. stuff. So maybe he had the stuff right. in the Little Children. I just missed it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I very much admired Little Children, and it took me to the book by Tom Parada, which just took me to Tom Parada in general, which was a gift that I was very grateful for. I think yeah. both of these movies just have a, a like a Kubrickian chill and control to them that is kind of offset by the fact that the character work is so rich. You know, Kubrick was kind of famously. Demanding of a very particular kind of performance uh, that he worked very hard to get, but not necessarily interested in in human warmth and depth, and both of these movies are very much about human warmth and depth, like in the bedroom i I don't remember as well as I should. It's been more than twenty years since I saw it. But I remember at the time just thinking. I'm I'm too young to relate to these characters and their experience that they're having as like older parents navigating grief and loss but this movie is telling me what life is going to be like for me 20 years from now. This movie is telling me about an experience that I'm not mature enough or complicated enough for yet and it's doing it with enough nuance that I can actually experience it. you know Roger Ebert's famous uh, thing about movies being a, a machine to generate empathy uh, in the bedroom was one of the like early film critic life movie experiences that just really brought that home for me because the the exploration of how people navigate just the unthinkable differently was, so, so impactful and so powerful.
1: Yeah. And I just, I, I really love this idea of like, of the fact that, that, ha- you know, having children obviously changes the dynamic, the relationship, a marriage, it alters a marriage to a, a profound degree. And then, and then, but then losing one would, would then, it follows that that would also have an effect as well. And in, in learning who these people are to each other, learning how they each, deal with grief and how and how that grief kind of leads to their separation their, their ways of, of handling the situation leads, leads to to that the marriage becoming fractured and them having there's one extremely protracted argument in the in the film bet- between sissy spacek and tom wilkinson's characters that are that's really strong and and again one of those bold choices that i think we see a lot in, of in tar
2: That's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Scott, want to set us up for our episodes releasing on November 15th and 22nd?
1: Martin McDonough's new movie, The Banshees of Inishirin, his follow-up to the dark crime drama, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, follows two old friends, played by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, living on a remote Irish island and navigating a dramatic friend breakup, as one decides he isn't speaking to the other anymore. It's a bleak and bloody comedy where discovering the secrets behind their history and their fractured friendship is a lot of the fun of the film. Naturally, it reminded us of the previous film these three men made together, 2008's In Bruges, where the two men again play Irishmen who have been friends for a long time, now navigating the bloody breakdown of their relationship. Except in that case, they're both playing hitmen, and one of them has made a terrible, fatal mistake. They're very different movies in tone and focus, But they both lean on clever, complicated scripting and secrets, and they feel like variations on a theme. We'll look at how well they match and how widely they differ in the next installment of the Next Picture Show podcast.
2: For now, we welcome your feedback on both Dangerous Liaisons and Tar. And anything else film-related you'd like to talk about, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-773. 234-9730. Two three four nine seven three zero. Before we close out this week's episode, where can you find everyone these days? Genevieve?
3: I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on socials uh, under my name,
0: Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I'm the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott?
1: Uh, yeah, so the, uh, you can, uh, find me, uh, mainly on the reveal, uh, the, uh, newsletter I do with, uh, Mr. Keith Phipps, uh, and you can find me, uh, at the New York times. I just did kind of a, my first big feature in a while on, on the Amazon show, the peripheral. And I'm also, uh, writing for, uh, Vulture and, and, uh, the ringer and other fine uh, outlets, the guardian. And you can find me on Twitter at, at, at Scott underscore Tobias Keith.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm also on the reveal.substack.com with my partner, Scott Tobias, who you just heard from. Hello, Scott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've for a bunch of places. You can follow my, I, I tweet it all out on, on Twitter, if that's still around when this re- episode releases, FKF <laughs> 3000. Uh, you can find my work at places like uh, GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, and TV Guide, and other fine publications. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan, the Bake Jakes, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.